following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We are going to turn in the part of our service now where we look at the Bible, and uh, the bit we're looking at is a bit called Daniel chapter 4, towards the middle. Uh, Simon is going to read as he does the sermon, I think. Do grab your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4. And I've got a little handout to go round. Could I hand uh, one to fill this side? Halfway through printing these, the printer died. So if anyone would like to share um, as uh, they go back, that would be good. Now, while those are going round, let me just say... um, The Bible has some pretty amazing conversion stories in it. People who turn to the Lord from astounding backgrounds. Think of uh, somebody like Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector, who meets Jesus. And his life is transformed. He gives all of his his money away. The Apostle Paul, who before he came to Jesus, was spending his time persecuting, trying to kill Christians, and then suddenly meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. Today, we're going to be hearing uh, what has to be one of the most astonishing, most unlikely conversion stories of all, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, if you've been here these last few weeks, you'll remember him. We've um, spent three weeks in the book of Daniel so far. Here's what we've learned about Nebuchadnezzar. He was the the vicious and all-powerful emperor of the Babylonian Uh, nation which became an empire. Uh, He led the brutal invasion, the conquering of countless nations around Babylon, including Israel. He kidnapped a generation of young people from Israel, including Daniel, and took them to be brainwashed into becoming Babylonian and believing Babylonian gods instead of the God of Israel. He demanded in chapter 3 last week that everyone bow down and worship a giant statue of him. This is the guy we're talking about. He was also troubled by dreams. Especially, do you remember Daniel chapter 2, where he had a dream that his kingdom would be replaced by a succession of human kingdoms and then they would all be swept aside by the kingdom of God. So this is the guy we're talking about. All-powerful, brutal, troubled. So let's hear the reading. King Nebuchadnezzar. To the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men in Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. 
Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones, Declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the fields, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree. The Most High is issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold him back. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Father, thank you for this dramatic account from so long ago. And Lord, we pray that you would show us, show us the depths of all that it means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine that you are reading the Harry Potter books and you've worked your way through books one to six and you're excited to get going on book seven. And uh, book seven arrives and it's just one sheet of paper which says on it, from Lord Voldemort to the wizards of the world, I'm writing to apologize for my appalling conduct. I realize now that my pride has led to my downfall. And after a disturbing dream that Harry has kindly interpreted for me, I would like to declare an end to my reign of terror. Uh, much love, V. Um, or, or a letter from Sauron or Thanos or uh, Emperor Palpatine or whoever fits your favorite story. It would be shocking and surprising and amazing. This letter from Nebuchadnezzar is shocking and wonderful. In verse 1, he writes this letter to the nations and peoples of the earth. And that's exactly the same group of people that a chapter before he told to bow down and worship the golden image of himself. But now everything has changed. So chapter 4, verse 2, here's what he says, and I think we can see this. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. What an extraordinary turnaround. This is, as I've said on your handout, the testimony of a repentant man. A proud man who is finally humbled to the point of admitting one thing, which is that God rules. The Lord of time and space is not King Nebuchadnezzar, though he felt as if he was, but it's the King of heaven, the Most High God. So this chapter is going to teach us, in many ways, what it's like to become a Christian. Um, Not that it's normal to be like Nebuchadnezzar and have these wild dreams and interpretations and strange psychotic episodes, which we'll get to on the way to conversion, but... The lessons learned by Nebuchadnezzar are things that he wants all the readers of the letter to understand. Things like verse 35, God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples on the earth. That's all of us. Verse 37, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. That was what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, but it's something all of us need to hear. Those who walk in in pride, God is able to humble. So it's an example to us, but also a huge encouragement. Even somebody like Nebuchadnezzar is not beyond the amazing grace of God. We sang amazing grace earlier. The writer of that hymn, John Newton, had been a slave trader. 
reached by God's amazing grace, forgiven for all that he'd done. And God's amazing grace comes even to Nebuchadnezzar. And consider that. We, we will meet King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. What a thought. God is wonderfully gracious. So here we go. Just quickly tour through it uh, from Nebuchadnezzar himself, because this chapter is a letter written by him. Here we go, four parts of his story to think about. First of all, I was proud and I ruled my world. In verse 4 and uh, some later verses as well. Verse 4, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Or what about that fantastic snapshot of his pride later on in verse 29, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon and just looking around and saying, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I, I, me, me. It's all about him. He was proud and he ruled his world. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned the British Museum, and some of the artifacts they have there about the Babylonian Empire. Here are a few Nebuchadnezzar-related exhibits that uh, give us a picture of his pride. This is a square brick. Thousands of these have been found in the Babylon uh, archaeological site. All of them have that uh, inscription stamped in the middle, which says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and lists a load of his titles. He literally stamped his name all over the place, on bricks around the town of Babylon. And what a city, Babylon, the center of the, the empire of the known world at the time. And then the second one, this is a, a bronze step with the same inscription, reminding people entering a building of the great Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's a cylinder describing Nebuchadnezzar's work on three palaces. And apparently cylinders like this were buried in the sort of corners of the foundations of buildings so that any future renovator or excavator could dig them up and marvel at the great Nebuchadnezzar and all of his achievements. This is the kind of man we're talking about. Unbelievably proud, and with an awful lot of reasons to feel proud. More than any of us, I should think. So it is kind of easy to laugh at him a bit and go, well, I'm not like that. He was a bit over the top, wasn't he? I'll never have an empire I can see why he felt he was proudly ruling his world, but that's not my danger. Or is it? Because when we stop and think about how the Bible describes human beings and our nature, it's clear that pride is a problem all of us have and all of us struggle with. We all love to rule our little empires as much as we can. We love to stamp our name on the things that we feel that we've achieved. If any of us own a house or a car, there can be a right sense of, of joy in that, but also a bit of pride can creep in. This, this is now my bit of the earth. This is my little empire. I rule here. Don't rule anywhere else, but here. This is my domain. I rule over the money in my bank account. Well, I wish. Um, but we're, we're tempted to do that with our possessions, the things that we have, these are mine, gained through my power. They're here for my glory. With our career or education, these achievements, these certificates, they may not be much. These letters on my business card, these are my achievements for my glory. 
doesn't matter how small it is, but I rule my world, and here's the evidence. Of course, if we haven't achieved what we would like, if we feel a sense of disappointment and frustration and sadness, actually, that can be the flip side of pride. I feel as if I should rule my world. I should be able to, and it upsets me when I, when I don't. And the problem is, when you and I try to rule our world, or wish we did, that squeezes out God. There's a, a cartoon summary of the Christian faith called Two Ways to Live. I don't know if you've seen it. And it starts with um, these uh, two little pictures. On the left, the first picture is of us living in the world, and above it, a great big crown symbolizing God and his loving, benevolent rule, generous rule over the world. But the next picture shows what we do. It's got God's crown crossed out. And a tiny little crown on my head instead. And when we wear our little crowns, we're doing that. We're, we're saying to God, I don't want you to, to rule my life. I don't want to give control over my bit of the world to you, Lord. That's the story of humanity since Genesis 3, when the snake, remember, said, you can be like God. In other words, you, you can rule you don't need God. Rule your own life. When Nebuchadnezzar said, effectively, I was proud and I ruled my world, we're a little bit more similar to him than we might like to think. So that's where he started off. Secondly, he says, I ignored a chance to repent. That's kind of what's going on in this dream. The dream is a prod from God. It's a wake-up call. It's a kind but urgent warning that things cannot go on like this. Nebuchadnezzar must repent of wearing this crown and refusing to acknowledge God's much bigger crown. So in verse 5, uh, he's a little bit like uh, Scrooge because he goes to bed and has a terrible night. He's terrified by the images and uh, visions that pass through his head. And like Scrooge, he realizes that this might be a fearful vision of his own future and his own downfall, and he wakes up in a sweaty mess, and verse 6 um, goes off uh, to try and get the magicians in Babylon to, to interpret the dream, hopeless, just like they were in chapter 2. But then Daniel came, and Nebuchadnezzar knows from chapter 2 that Daniel might be able to help. In verse 9, he calls him Belteshazzar. Remember, that's the Babylonian name imposed on Daniel. Uh, reflecting the names of the, the Babylonian gods. And he says to Daniel, Chief of the magicians, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. No mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. Now, I think Daniel gives us some quite helpful lessons in the way he responds here. Uh, two quick lessons to learn from Daniel. First of all, he knows when to just listen. Because... There's a lot to criticize in what Nebuchadnezzar just said. Daniel could have said, hold on, your majesty, let me just correct your comment about the spirit of the holy gods. There's only one God. Um, if you, uh, you need to repent of your polytheism before we can continue. Be like Daniel. If someone comes to you with a genuine question, listen. There'll be time later to talk about polytheism. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite get sorted on that front in this chapter. Um, but there's time. Secondly, Daniel genuinely cares. So in verse 19, 
When Daniel hears the dream, he was perplexed and terrified. Why? Because he says to the king, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, the conqueror of Israel. Daniel had every reason to think, fantastic. He's going to get his comeuppance from God. Been waiting for this. It's about time. But this is not a fake show of empathy. Daniel genuinely cares, even for Nebuchadnezzar. Good lessons for our own conversations with others. So Daniel interprets the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree, large and strong. It's top touching the sky. He has beautiful leaves and uh, abundant fruit, providing food, giving shelter to many peoples. And you think, well, this is a slightly idealized view of Babylon, but there we go. Um, in God's kindness, he's not going to be utterly destroyed. But this messenger from heaven says he's going to be cut down, cut down. There's only going to be a stump left, bound with iron and bronze. And then a change of metaphor. He's going to be like a wild animal, in verse 25, sharing grass with the cattle until seven times pass by for you. That's probably seven years. The key for Nebuchadnezzar is verse 25. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to everyone he wishes... Verse 26, your kingdom will be restored to you, but only when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That's what he's got to learn. God rules, even over Nebuchadnezzar. So this dream for Nebuchadnezzar is a chance to repent. It's not yet final judgment. Daniel, uh, verse 27, Daniel says, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may then be that your prosperity will continue. But we learn in verse 28 that 12 months pass and nothing has changed. So Nebuchadnezzar has been given this gracious opportunity to repent and he ignores it. Actually, it's the third time he's ignored a prod from God um, remember the dream of chapter 2 and then the rescue of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace in chapter 3. God is sending a Nebuchadnezzar a lot of messages. But he's not listening. He seems to respond a bit initially positively and then that quickly turns to nothing. For some of us here, that could be you. Or it could be people that you know. Or maybe it was you at some point in your life. Maybe your proud rule of your personal kingdom got shaken or, or has been or is being shaken a few times. That can happen in all sorts of ways. Maybe scares of, of different kinds, health scares, economic scares, relational scares that have taken uh, its toll on you and, and shaken you. Even bad dreams like Nebuchadnezzar. I read that one of the most common psychological ailments of the rich is to have terrible dreams where they lose it all. Or maybe you're someone who's heard the Christian message often, repeatedly, and sometimes felt unsettled by it. And there's a voice of conscience in you that says, I, I, I think maybe I need Jesus. I need to 
Come to him and receive forgiveness. You've been told about the amazing love of God. Jesus coming to to die for you so that you could have life and forgiveness. Maybe you've heard that repeatedly and it's tugged something in your mind or your conscience, but perhaps you've walked away unchanged, at least for now, because it didn't really fit with how you see your life or the pride you want to have. A friend of mine once took the Christianity Explored course four times. That's pretty extreme. And uh, God held out his invitation over and over again to this person, initially to no avail. Finally, about five years later, uh, this friend of mine came to the Lord Jesus. One of my relatives uh, once came to us, um, to, came with us to loads of church events, talked with us a lot about the good news of Jesus, even joined a Bible study uh, that we were part of for about half a year. But it was to no avail. And um, for lots of reasons, um, she sort of tailed off. But in, in her most honest moment, she confessed to us that she thought the Christian message might well be true. But she wanted to keep control. She wanted to keep ruling over a certain area of her life that she knew would have to change if she came to Jesus. She knew that her choices were in conflict with what God would call her to do. And so at the moment, she's still clinging on to her little crown and pushing away God's big one. I'm sure you can think of people that might be in that situation, people you know, people you love, people who are proudly wearing that that little crown. Maybe it's you. It can be sad and frustrating when we see people like that. It's, it's tempting to, to give up and to think they're beyond God's reach. They're too unlikely a convert. Too unlikely a convert? King Nebuchadnezzar should shake us out of that. Don't give up. Can you imagine a more unlikely convert than King Nebuchadnezzar? So look at um, the third uh, little uh, biographical point. I was humbled and lost my humanity. So it all happens, just as the dream said. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar is proud as ever, wandering around on his balcony, proclaiming how wonderful he is. And uh, although he's had this dream of his future, like Scrooge, unlike Scrooge, he's not been changed by this dream at all. And so it happens. Nebuchadnezzar has, and nobody really knows what he had, um, scholars debate it, of course. Did he have a, a psychotic episode or schizophrenia or um, clinical lycanthropy, which is apparently a rare delusional state where a person thinks they're an animal? Apparently that exists. Um, we don't know. Nothing's come to us about this apart from in the Bible. It's not the kind of thing that embarrassed Babylonian officials and writers of history would record. Uh, it was probably all hushed up. The king is mad. Don't tell anyone. Otherwise, the empire would have fallen apart. Although, interestingly, we, we do have historical records galore from the earlier part of his reign, and then a strange silence later on. That's interesting. Maybe very few people knew what really happened. But God wanted this recorded for us. And what the Bible gives us is it's not a medical diagnosis. It's, it's a vivid description Um, He became like an animal, verse 32, living with the wild animals, eating grass like cattle. Verse 33, his his hair grew like the the feathers of an eagle. 
his nails like the claws of a bird. In summary, he lost his humanity and became like a beast. And that is very significant. Because what does being human really mean? Being human means, the Bible says, being made in God's image. It's all about being in relationship with God, which the book of Genesis explains in in two ways. It says we rule the world on God's behalf, and we're in relationship with God and each other. Those two things, ruling the world for God and being in relationship with him and others. When we fail to do those two things, we're actually failing to be truly human in the ways that God wants us to be. And you look at Nebuchadnezzar, he, he wasn't ruling on God's behalf. He was ruling on his own behalf. He, he wasn't in relationship with God. He had relationships, but, but not with God and not for God. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar had been behaving like a beast all along with his oppression. Selfish, devoid of humanity. And so God said, right, you've been acting like a beast. You're going to become a beast. A shocking thought, I think. We, like Nebuchadnezzar, can be comfortably getting on with our lives, assuming that we can't be disturbed, acting a bit like animals. Think of your life. Think of the various domains in which you spend your time. Are you being more human in relationship with God or or animal in the way you do that? To be human is to rule those areas on God's behalf, acknowledging his higher, higher rule over us. To be more of an animal is to just do it all for ourselves, not for God. No higher accountability ruling on our own behalf. We sometimes say to people, you're behaving like an animal. We say it to children quite regularly. Uh, more seriously, we, we, we might be crying tears of despair as we watch in the news. Adult human beings treating each other uh, dreadfully, tearing each other apart, massacring each other. Animal behavior. We recognize that sometimes people act act like beasts. So even though every human being is made in God's image and must be treated with absolute full dignity for that, the more we turn from God, the more we can sometimes act like animals. Selfish instinct and pride takes over rather than the love of God and love of others. We're all at times less human than we should be because of humanity's rebellion against him. Even though that's disturbing news, it's actually kind of God to tell us, to point that out to us. No doubt it was a a dreadful experience, painful, humiliating, humbling, but it showed Nebuchadnezzar what was really true. Underneath all of that outward impressiveness and royal pomposity, without God... Nebuchadnezzar was just an animal. Later in Daniel, the the dreams of Daniel are are full of a succession of bizarre animals representing kings and empires who opposed God. Now, one of the scary things about this is Nebuchadnezzar was so stubborn that for him to see the truth about himself, God had to take everything away. His authority, even his sanity, only then was he ready to hear the truth. Could God do that to you or to me? Take away everything we have or the things that we hold most dear out of 
kindness to us, to shock us into coming back to him. He could. He might. C.S. Lewis said that suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And here, even this, what looks like a psychotic illness of some kind, is used by God in kindness. Sometimes terrible experiences in this world are what we need to wake us up to reality. And God might do that. He might not. There's no guarantee, even if he did, that we would react by being humbled. Next week, we'll we'll meet another king who God speaks to and, and he ignores God's warning and never repents. But Nebuchadnezzar finally did. I remember years ago hearing the testimony of, um, some of you might remember, Adrian Plass, who, uh, a Christian sort of author and, and poet. His life fell apart years ago when um, his sanity collapsed. He, he suffered some kind of breakdown. He was unable to function, unable to do anything. And he looks back at that time, and what he remembers is feeling like he was endlessly falling, nothing to capture him, nothing to, to, to hold him. Everything he trusted in, he just felt was, was gone. But he says that somehow he knew that even though he was left with nothing, Jesus was still there. The only thing that was still there. He was there as king to catch him, to pick up the pieces and slowly build him back together and make him human again. Some of us here might have stories Similar to that, when life falls apart, Jesus will be there to catch you if you trust in him. So, last couple of minutes. Number four, I lifted my eyes to heaven, says Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Verse 34, after a, a, a chapter or a lifetime of looking down from his throne, Nebuchadnezzar finally looks up for the first time, up to see the higher throne that is far above him, the throne of the Most High God. It's an amazing admission for this man to make. God is God, and I am not. I'm going to take off my silly little crown and throw it away like a paper crown from a Christmas cracker. God is the Most High. He rules. He wears the crown. And that actually is the testimony, in the end, of everyone who becomes a Christian. My crown needs to come off. I'm not in charge. I'm not in control. Jesus is the true king of the universe. The crown belongs on his head. And he's the only one that we can trust to rule. The only one that any of us should want to be king forever. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes human again, no longer an animal. Verse 34, his sanity is restored to him. Because it's insane to try to overthrow the Most High God. It is sane to praise and glorify Him and give Him the throne of our lives. So in verse 36, this this newly human, newly sane man is restored to his throne, this time with God's blessing. And he lives to tell us that the King of Heaven rules. So as we finish, are you with him? Are you with Nebuchadnezzar? Not a question we thought we would ask. Are you with Nebuchadnezzar? Our society will tell you, you rule, take charge of your destiny, be who you want to be, take control, forget God, he's an inconvenient cramp on your style and your self-determination, live for yourself. That's not right. 
living for ourselves, even just living for the human race, makes us more, more animals, more behave more like animals than humans. We're made for so much more than that. Let's join Nebuchadnezzar, this most unlikely convert, and look up. If you've never come to Jesus, let this humbled man humble you so that you look up. Let, let Nebuchadnezzar, bizarrely, lead you to Jesus. Look up and see Jesus' crown and rejoice. And remember, don't give up on anyone who's not yet looking up. If Nebuchadnezzar can be reached, anyone can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you so much for this wonderful testimony from a man reached by you from the most incredibly unlikely circumstances. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us a deeper trust that you can reach anyone, that your grace is big enough for anyone. We pray, Lord, that we too, if we haven't yet done it, would bow the knee, acknowledge that wonderfully you are God and we are not, and delight to live within your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.